We're going to read from the New Testament tonight in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, and verse 11 through to 24. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who had sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he had come to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Amen, and God will add his blessing. Let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for this evening hour that brings us together into this place where we again can worship you. We thank you, Lord, for the public reading of your word. We pray that your word would always be central to our gathering as we listen as we listen to the words, as we listen to the voice of the preacher. But most of all, we pray that we would listen to the voice of God. We thank you tonight, Lord. We are, we are found here, not that we deserve your mercy and goodness, but we thank you, Lord, that it's all of grace, that we find ourselves here this evening to thank you, Lord, to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus to praise his holy name for all that he has done for us in coming to this earth, to come as a babe, to grow up as a, a man and to be that perfect one, the one who gave his all for us on that cross of Calvary. We thank you, Lord, as we gather. We would ask, Lord, that you would bless Jonathan as he brings your word in a few moments. We again would pray that the Spirit of God would breathe on the word this evening to encourage us, to teach us many great truths 
For we know, Lord, that your word is an inexhaustible book. And those who have been on the road, that Christian road for many years, still find nuggets of gold, still find great encouragement, still find great blessing and challenge too from out of thy precious word. And we pray tonight, Lord, as we leave here later, we would be those who would be uplifted and blessed by the very presence of Almighty God. So thank you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every morning. And we pray for our community around here in Hamilton, in Kemp Street, those who watch us come and go each week, that they might begin to think there is a God to have to deal with. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And we pray, Lord, your blessing on those who may come over this month of Advent that you would minister to their hearts too. So bless our time together as we lift up our voices again in song, asking your blessing now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, good evening. We're going to do something a little bit different tonight that I've not really done before. Um, and the reason we're going to do this is because I think it would be good for us to do it. Uh, is really why we're going to do it. There's nothing particularly profound in that. Um, but we're going to pause halfway through Jonah as we are. And increasingly, as we've worked through this book, the parallels to Luke 15 have been remarkable and have hit me over and over and over again. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause in the first half of the prodigal son just now, and we're going to visit from verse 25 once we finish the book in February. And we're going to do that because I think Jonah plays out in this story these two brothers. He moves from being the younger brother to the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. So we're going to revisit it then. It's reckoned between the ages of 18 months and two years is when a child learns that the reflection in a mirror is them. And now, I don't know if you've ever held a baby to a mirror, but it's really entertaining because you hold up the baby and they just, they kind of frown and try and slap and they have to try and work out who on earth is this. It's even funnier if you do it with a dog and the dog starts squaring up to it saying, I'm bigger than you and, and whatever else. But that's it. That's, I, I love doing this with, with mirrors and of course, as we get older, we recognize that as ourselves. And I think... What we see tonight is a New Testament reflection of the book of Jonah. Now, Tim Keller, who writes wonderfully his book, The Prodigal Prophet, has this idea that Jesus has in mind the book of Jonah when he's telling them the story of the prodigal son. And I can absolutely see where that comes from. So I just want to draw out the parallels. And what I'm going to do is I'm only going to take probably 20, 25. I'm, I'm going to keep it relatively short this evening. Um, and then Craig's going to come and lead us through a time of quiet reflection. I want to extend that a little bit this evening um, as we explore this book. But there are many similarities, and I'm sure as we've read through, you can identify many of them, but there's three keys we're going to look at, and they are simply the key, the key themes that we've seen in Jonah. Rebellion, repentance, and restoration. They're going to be our three. Thanks, Steph. We start then with our rebellion, as Nathan has read for us. A man has two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far off country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
We discovered early on in Jonah that Jonah was a prophet of prosperity, that Jonah ministered in his hometown, that he had a good life where he was as this successful prophet as he went about his ministry. He was comfortable in his work. And that's the reality of this younger son here, isn't it? This son works. He evidently has more than enough that he needs. He'll tell us later that even the servants have enough foods. And then we'll see by the father's reaction of his returning the wealth of his father. We see all these things here. So we start the story with the younger brother. We'll call him a man. He might have been a boy. But we have this younger brother and we have this Jonah who comparably are two very comfortable men. According to the Jewish law, an elder son received twice as much as the other sons. And a father could distribute his wealth during his lifetime if he wished. And it was perfectly legal for the younger son to ask for what he'd asked for. He was even allowed to sell it. But it certainly wasn't the loving thing for a son to do. It certainly wasn't the thing that a son would do and a father would go, son, I love you for that. Thank you. Really what he's saying is, dad, I wish you were dead because I can have the good stuff that you're going to leave behind when you're gone. That's really what he's saying to his father in this. So we start with two characters and, and as Jonah is confronted by God, as the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, what we see is two comfortable men that both valued something more than God. Jonah valued his comfort, and this young man values, well, he values his father's possessions more than he values his father. Two men, two totally separate situations. We'll look at the purpose of Jesus writing Luke, uh, speaking Luke 15 shortly, but very different scenarios, but two root problems here. They put themselves above their father's. And I think the lesson from the prodigal isn't so much about obedience to the call of God, but it's a warning of when you have the wrong priorities. And that's what we've seen so far in Jonah, isn't it? And, and the work that the Lord would do, how far he would go to bring Jonah back to doing what he would have him do. Luke twelve fifteen: take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? Well, because somebody that wants more will never be satisfied. No matter how much stuff they have, a dissatisfied heart will always lead to a dissatisfied life. Simply, we cannot make ourselves happy by acquiring more stuff. And this son had everything in his hands. From this well-to-do father, he would have had an abundance in his hands right in front of him. But of course, it led to no satisfaction it led to an unfulfilled and a disappointed life comfortable prophet comfortable son who both make a terrible decision Jonah armed with his self-entitlement the son armed with the riches of his father take off for a foreign land now, I doubt the sun was aiming for two and a half thousand miles as Jonah was, but the far country is representative of that. And we looked at that when we came to it in Jonah, this idea that the far country was the desires of the heart, that it was a point of saying, I'm going to go far away because that's what I want to do. This picture of the far country is our desire, not what the Father would have for us, not what, the, what the God our Father would have for us. Jonah are in this parable, what the father would have for the son. 
But the far country is appealing. It is that attitude of the world is my oyster, that pursuit of pleasure, that pursuit of I can go and do whatever it might be free of any sort of moral obligation, free from any sort of uh, spiritual ties, free from absolutely anything. I can just go wild and do as I might do. And many people share that kind of expectation, that realization, keen to choose their own paths, keen to experience everything that the world would offer. And I'm sure as we talk of that, there are many that come to your mind. Those who have decided that the far country is far better than being with the father. Maybe it's a child, a niece, a nephew, a friend. For some of us, maybe it's a parent. It is brutally painful to watch. It is brutally and heartbreakingly painful to watch. Somebody safe with the father, where the father would have them decide the far country is better. And that's what we have here, a son that says, no, I'm not going to be with my father. I'm going to go in pursuit of my own things. But we know that ultimately and eternally, the exhilaration of the far country never lasts. Who knows how far Jonah got on that two and a half thousand mile boat journey? But ultimately, it wasn't very relevant. Whether he got five miles, whether he got almost two and a half thousand is pretty irrelevant because he didn't get there. Or as we come to this son, where there happens to be things out with his control, a severe famine in the country, met with his reckless living, destroyed him. So we recognize there that the exhilaration doesn't last. Dreams fade, friends desert, people discover themselves. We hear that phrase, don't we? I've discovered myself. The problem is when we discover ourselves, that's where we really begin to see the fallenness of this world as we see ourselves in our true light. And I think the prodigal son has many interpretations, many meanings. It has, on one level, applications for us every time we come back to the Lord. It has big applications for people that we think of as prodigals, for those who have walked, for those who have come back. But as Jonah would dream of the freedom that lay in Tarshish, the son dreamt of enjoying his freedom far away from his father, from his older brother. And if you look at the two parables above, the sheep were lost because, well, they're sheep and they're daft. Their foolishness has lost them. You look at the coin and it was lost through carelessness. But you look at the son, it was lost. He was lost totally willfully. There is a foolish innocence to a sheep. There is a carelessness to losing something. But there is a deliberate and willful disobedience in walking away that we see in the son. So he wanted his own way. He rebelled against his father and in the process will have undoubtedly broken his father's heart. And this journey to the far country, who knows how long it lasted. Doesn't, again, it doesn't matter if it was a couple of days. It doesn't matter if it was years because it all would end in the same place for him. In verse 13, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. One thing I find remarkable as I think about the prodigal son is that it's the blessings of his father that financed his, his worldliness. It is the blessings of everything good that his father had given him 
that financed his walking away. And it was interesting that it's that reminder of the generosity of the father and the love of the father that in his poverty sends him straight back to his father. And I think there's maybe an interesting reflection in there is how we view the blessings of God. At times, how we might take the blessings that God gives us in our families, our finances, our jobs, whatever it might be. And we might take those blessings and we might slowly but surely begin to replace the centrality of the Lord Jesus with those blessings. As the son has done. We recognize that our jobs are good, our hobbies are good, our gifts are good, our families are very good. But none of it will eternally satisfy. And as marvelous and as God-honoring as his blessings are, those blessings can soon become idolatry if the Lord Jesus is not at the right place in our hearts. It's an interesting journey teaching a child that actions have consequences. I'm not really getting there. Like I'm not, you're not going to watch any telly after tea or you're not getting a yogurt after dinner is about the extent of the punishment that we work on at the minute. Um, and consequences are a hard thing to piece together for tiny little children because you're always worried you're going to be far too severe and you're going to emotionally scar a two-year-old and that's definitely not what I want to do. But just trying to gently teach that there are boundaries to life, that there are consequences to action, cause and effect. And we looked a few weeks ago at the storms that are caused by our sinfulness. Acknowledging, of course, that not all bad things happen because of what we do. But recognizing that here we have a storm and we have great poverty face down in the middle of the pigs with nothing to his name. Both of them caused by deliberate walking away from the father. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So both men are in big trouble. That's where we come. That's the result of the rebellion. Both of them are in great trouble. Um, one of them is in the face of a great storm. One of them in deep poverty. But ultimately, both chose to follow their own hearts over the will of their fathers. So, we move from that in this rebellion to absolute rock bottom, to crisis point for both of them, don't we? Jonah, the lots are cast. Jonah is the one. It is his sin. It is his fault. So they throw him overboard. Jonah's battling the waves. There's seaweed around his neck. All that sort of stuff that we're told about in Jonah 1. All this stuff going on. And we're told that he begins to sink and sink hard. And in, verse, in chapter 2, he tells us how he cried out to the Lord in that moment. But we see him at crisis point, at rock bottom, literally plummeting to the depth. And we have that same sort of image right here. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Man, if that's not crisis point, I don't know what is. I don't need to tell you of how lowly a job it is to be a pig farmer in ancient Israel. So we have two men who've picked their own paths, who've both walked away from the Father, who now both find themselves at crisis point. And we move then to where the story 
really becomes very interesting for us in their repentance. It is in the midst of this recognizing, this confrontation of the fallenness of the son, they begins to realize and remember just how much better things were with my father than they are here in the pigs. In one place, he doesn't have enough to eat. In one place, in, in with his father, he recognizes there's more than enough. There's more than I could possibly need. We saw that with Jonah when he said, um, as I went to the depths, uh, where the bars are set, this place where nobody returns, the place of certain death. As he sunk to the depths, he recognized there just how far away he was. Verse 17 reads, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You ever been asked that question? If you could turn back pick a time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and speak to yourself back then, what's one thing you would say to yourself? I wonder if the son could have turned time back in that moment before he had taken the inheritance from his father, what he would have said to himself. Interesting, the beginning of verse 17, the phrase that's used here, he came to himself. He came to himself. I guess it's suggesting up until this point he wasn't really himself. This idea that there is an insanity in sin. There was an insanity in walking away from his father. It was a ridiculous decision. It was a stupid thing to do. But his desire for freedom, his desire to follow his heart, his desire for the far country had made him lose sight of everything that was good right in front of him with his father. And now all these things were spent. Crisis has come and he realized he had left everything behind. And it was in that hitting of rock bottom as he was reminded of the father's love and generosity and comfort and safety and everything else that was good as home. He begins to reflect on his situation and it's here that he admits he is a sinner. At rock bottom, recognizing there's nowhere else to go for him. This is where he recognizes he's a sinner. So too does Jonah on that journey to rock bottom. He recognizes who he is before God. He recognizes in that moment, God, I desperately, desperately, desperately need you. The son confesses, doesn't he? Verse 18 of everything that his father has. I will arise and go to my father, recognizing that he has sinned against him and more importantly against heaven. But that home was far, far greater than the freedom that he now come experienced and been utterly destroyed by in this far off land. You see, it's interesting here. And, and Jonah's got the same reflection for us. But I think what's really critical here is it's the goodness of the father that points him to going home. It's not his badness. It's not the self-pity of how far I've come okay, maybe my father will have pity on me because of how far I've fallen. But it's remembering the character of the father. It's remembering that my father is a good man. My father is a generous man. He's a gracious man. And hopefully, he will extend that to me. 
I know I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. His father's generous. His hired servants have more than enough food. Maybe, maybe those characteristics of my father might just remain for me. And then you have Jonah, the one of the, the heart of flesh, but the hardness around that heart that meant he couldn't pray in this locked sinfulness with God. He just couldn't break through that. And as crisis hit, and as he came to that point, he recognized, and he remembered just how great God is. He remembered how marvelous God is. He remembers his heart. He says, I call out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. He remembers the steadfast hope, the steadfast love of hope that he has with the Father. You see, for this son, if it was his hunger or his loneliness or his isolation or his homesickness that was the driving, his driving factor for going home, he would have just despaired because that self-centeredness wouldn't have let him go. But I think these painful circumstances helped him see his father in a new light. He saw the goodness in a, in a way that he just hadn't seen before. And this brings him hope. It brings him hope that as he's about to embark on this journey, however far it is, back to his father, that there might just be something at the end of this journey for me. You see those words from verse 18, I will arise and go and I will say. This isn't just a change of attitude, but this is I'm going to go and do. I will arise I will go, I will say. This repentance from this young man, if there is ever a time for an expression, your tail between your legs, it is this boy going back to his father. But this is real boldness, this is real courage, where he's owning the mistakes, he's owning everything that he's possibly done wrong here. So we have two stories of two men utterly broken, recognizing their sinfulness before great fathers who are good to them and generous and gracious. We have one preparing for a journey to stand up from the pigs and to walk home. We have another now stuck in the belly of a fish for a while. So what do their fathers do about it? That's our third thing from verse 20 in Restoration. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant. But the father said to the servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's marvelous. Marvelous words. You see, the accusation Jesus is given in uh, verse 2 of Luke 15, the whole reason for this parable, that, uh, verse 1 and 2, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And I imagine as they say this, Jesus almost laughs. 
Because what he's coming to and what he's seeing here is, is that right? Do I meet with them? Do I eat with them? Do I tolerate them? And then do I leave? Is that what I do with sinners? Is that right? And for them, they're going apoplectic over this. It, it sent Jesus to the cross at the hands of these people because they were so consumed with, with, with him not doing as they wanted. But little did they know that the least of what Jesus would do is eat with them. Jesus would eat with them. He would offer them a way to salvation and he would reconcile them. He would reconcile them to the Father through his blood. I mean, it's magnificent. You can imagine if the scribes had got into their heads that that's what he was coming to do. If they'd understood the words of Isaiah 9 and all these phenomenal things that would come before. Isaiah uh, 53, 54, everything that would come before them. If they'd understood, they would understand the least of what Jesus would do is come and merely eat with sinners. And he gives us this stunning picture of this son making his journey home possibly a long journey and there would have been many thoughts on that journey what will he say what if he doesn't want me what's he going to do and he crosses the horizon he crosses the horizon I kind of imagine his dad in a rocking chair with a bit of straw in his mouth just looking out over all the land and here pops this figure and the dad knows in an instant that that's his boy he knows in an instant that this is his boy in verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The accusation is that this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man doesn't just eat with sinners, friends. He runs to them. He embraces them. And he kisses them. <clears throat> Men don't run. Older men in the Eastern world, it's not what you do. You especially don't run to meet a disgraced son. But he's so overjoyed that this son might take this journey, that this son that he has hoped for and longed for dearly is now returning. But also I think in that embrace is this, this father is entitled to stone his son for his disgrace. Deuteronomy 21, he's, he's entitled to stone the son for the disgrace that he's brought upon his house. For the disgrace that he's brought to his family, to his village. And it's almost like this father runs to protect this son from that. That if the neighbours were going to stone this son, well, you're going to have to come through me. What a picture of what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross. What a picture that the Lord Jesus wouldn't just see, he wouldn't just eat, he wouldn't just tolerate. But in this picture, he would run, he would embrace, and he would protect. And not just that. If there could be anything else on top of that. And then he celebrates that. The father not only runs, but he honors his homecoming by preparing a great feast. And he invites the village. He invites them to come to eat. Bring, uh, verse 22, but the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate it. He was dead, now he's alive. And they began to celebrate. 
So what do we see in the attitude of this father? Well, he doesn't let his son finish the confession. But he interrupts him, he forgives him. And he ordered the celebration because he saw in the attitude of his son, he saw in his returning everything that could speak more than any words. The action of returning home spoke volumes for this son. And I think this paints a picture for us. This father paints a picture of all of those who would come and repent. That he is so rich in mercy and grace and in his love towards us. And all of this is possible because of the Lord Jesus. We are saved by him. Recognizing who we are before him. And sometimes that might take crisis point. Sometimes that might take breaking point. Which it did in both these stories. And then come and recognize that home with the Father is where true joy is. You see, everything that the younger son had hoped to find in the far country, he found back at home. He found friends, he found feasting, he found robes, he found jewelry, he found clothes, he found celebration, he found love, he found assurance, he found everything. He found everything he could possibly have wanted in the far country here at home. What's the difference? The attitude of the son is now not father give me, but it's father make me. You see, he's saying, father, give me everything that is mine. And then at the end he said, father, make me a servant. That's the difference. That's the difference in the attitude of the son as to how he sees everything that his father has for him. This is no longer self-entitlement but this is father I want to serve you he brings him the best robe that probably is the father's showing total acceptance into the family servants didn't wear rings and expensive garments and shoes and everything else that's brought out for him the father doesn't treat him as a servant but he treats him as a son You know, if this son had been dealt with according to the law, this would have been a funeral. But it's a feast. And that's an incredible reality. I think that's why this story is so unbelievably powerful. And Jesus adds those beautiful last words for us in verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. For any and all who come to know the Lord Jesus, this is reality. There is spiritual death and there is spiritual life. There is being lost and then there is being found. And we see, going back just for a quick moment to our friend Jonah, from everything he's been through to his his uh, repentance and ending in his thankfulness. You don't need to turn to it, but Jonah 2 verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So after all of this, recognizing who he is, 
crying out to the Lord, repenting to the Lord, we then have verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. A new beginning for Jonah. Let's start again. You have a task. Let's go and do it. You know, it would have been a lot easier for Jonah if he was obedient in the beginning. He wasn't, he's gone through what could be called a fairly large character building exercise. And here he is now out by the fish. Jonah, let's go again. This son, not cast out as expected, not a servant as expected, but adopted as a son. The gospel is the place of second, third, fourth, fifth. You might go on chances. Because our God is totally gracious. True hearts of repentance at times might take a while to come. It might take circumstances to build as it did with both of these stories. But there is a father with a loving embrace for all who would come to know him. So that's where we leave it for now. We'll come into chapter 3 and what we might hope might be the simplicity of the rest of Jonah. Of this prophet who now knows him. Uh, clearly the Lord and his will, that it might all be plain sailing from here. Wonderful things happen, but it's anything but. I'm excited to look at it in January. But for now, we close the book here. And we're reminded that the only way to the Father is through the Lord Jesus. And the offer of his salvation is there to all who will come. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you do not merely meet with sinners and eat with sinners. But you embrace sinners, you died for sinners and you reconcile sinners. It is the most glorious of truths. Might that truth be so vitally important to every aspect and ounce of our being. And Lord, as we now come to a time of reflection, to reflect on some of these points, these things, as we come to pray, might you, Lord, open our hearts afresh to those that we know in our lives, Lord, who have walked away. To those who have walked away from the safe arms of the Father to the far country. Lord, might you grow in us a compassion that the Lord Jesus has. A growing in grace and in mercy. And light the fire, the, the, the fuel inside of us, Lord to take the gospel forth with boldness that sinners might know there is a loving and a gracious God for them. Amen.